I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses and Stuff, the podcast that celebrates those who live, love, and breathe rock and roll. From the incredible groupies, girlfriends, and wives who went after what and who they wanted, to the journalists, photographers, and other behind-the-scenes characters who play such an important part in rock and roll history. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine, bringing you the best in collectibles, movies, music, wrestling, gaming, and more. Check it out at electrifiedporcupine.com. Hey there, this is Christian Swain from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Rock and Roll Archaeology? What's that you say? We are a podcast network dedicated to digging deep into the amazing music that exploded out of the second half of the 20th century. We believe the music, culture, and technology wove together, and it is an important story of history as, say, the Italian Renaissance or the Impressionists of Paris. We have six shows, all with a different side of this incredible time. Rock Talk with myself and host Peter Ferrioli. Real Rock, and that's R-E-E-L, hosted by Andy King. Vinyl Snob with the legendary Dave Whitaker. Rock and Roll Librarian with the headmistress herself, Shelley Sorensen. Deeper Digs in Rock, where I interview famous rock and roll personalities and the people who scribed the times and events. And finally, our full telling of the history of rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, which started it all. 
Find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So let's get back to Between the Sheets of Rock and Roll with Shanty and Lynx and Muses and Stuff. Hi. 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 Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm better than you at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit better. We're just saying, do you notice how people, if you're listening, if you're not in Canada, if you're not in Ontario, and you're a listener maybe in the States or somewhere warm, you might not know that people here sign emails or like open emails with, or like messages with, hey, hope you're staying warm or like, <laughs> stay warm. And yeah. it's like, we're not. That's so funny because that's like the last <laughs> thing I said in the Uber I took here. I, like, I said like, stay warm. And then I slammed the door. And, yeah. I'm wearing two scarves and I'm inside. <laughs> yeah. My hands are like ice right now. <gasps> oh, man. In February. Yeah. It's a tough one. We just have to get through it. We just, <sighs> everybody hang in there, guys. February is my worst month. I feel just like I'm by this time, I'm just so over it that I feel every day. But like you said, we're we're getting there. Every day passes is one day closer. Yeah. To sunshine, to skirts. <sighs> yeah. To bare legs. Oh, I can't wait. Um, I cannot wait. You're not feeling well and my roommate is not feeling well <laughs> and I'm fine. Right Knock now. on wood, yeah. you know, right <laughs> now. And I'm so surprised, like, TJ hasn't been sick. And in the four years that I've known that guy, he I've never seen him sick. Uh, I, I can't even imagine. Normally, this has been, like, the best year for me health-wise. And I'm sick right now. No, like. I don't get it. And, like, he loves taquitos. It's, like, a staple of his <laughs> diet. But I think it's because he's never stressed out. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I think, do you think that getting sick has a lot to do with uh, for Being sure, for sure. Stressed? Yeah. I lost a little patch in my hair this year because my doctor oh. said I was too stressed <laughs> out. Like, your body does crazy yeah. things when it's stressed. <laughs> it's growing back. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much of it, you never know. <laughs> yeah, luckily it's buried deep in there. Only I know that. And oh, everyone wanted, that listens. <laughs> I wanted to tell you something. Um, I listened to a really great podcast this week. So speaking of staying warm and cozy, a great way to do that is listen to a great podcast. Yes. Um, like, like muses and stuff. But also, if you've already listened to all of our episodes and you want maybe something else to listen to, um, I don't listen to it every single week, but... I'll always check and see what they've got going on. It's the, and I've talked about it before, the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast. Mm. And um, so they, the recent, most recent episode is about Dolores from the Cranberries. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So in the episode, they talked to a few people and then they also talked to the director of the zombie video. And he also directed Smells Like Teen Spirit and No Rain Rain by Blind Melon. Yeah, yeah. So in the, uh, podcast episode he talks about the idea and the f- filming and the shooting of zombie 
And he also talks about what it was like to do Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it was his first music video ever. And he talks about how, like, Kurt hated it and he hated him. Really? And, yeah. And, oh, like, not hated, maybe didn't hate the video afterwards, but during the whole process. Yeah, I won't spoil yeah. it. I won't spoil it because cool. it's so good. And then he goes on to, like, give a 30 second, like, briefing of how the No Rain video came to yeah. be. Yeah. That's a great video, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. Three iconic videos. It made me go back and watch all three videos. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I will check that out for sure. But right now I got a story for you. Oh, okay. I've been, I've been excited about this one, uh, especially since... The last two yeah, were... it's been a little uh, well, crazy. Well, just sad. Like, this, they were great. They were good episodes. Yeah, but yeah. Just I do say so shockers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this one's a little more innocent. I'm going to take you back to uh, Greenwich Village yeah. in the 60s. Uh, so yeah, this episode is all about Susie Rutolo. And Susie wrote a book, an incredible book called A Freewheeling Time, a memoir to, of Greenwich Village in the 60s. Oh, you got me at. Right? Yeah. I read this book a long time ago before I ever went to New York and rereading it after I've been there and walked all those streets she mentions. It was like a completely different experience and I'm so happy I got to like revisit it and uh, I just wish I could you know, go back in time and actually walk on those streets with them. Yeah. I also read Bob Dylan's book, Chronicles, Volume 1. I'm only taking, like, a couple things from that in here. So, uh, like, the majority is Susie's. All right. Oh, so it's spelled S-U-Z-E, but you pronounce it Susie? Susie. Yeah. Uh, Her name's Suzanne. She wanted to be a little different, and she liked... The way Susie looked, and uh, that's how she picked that. She just wanted, you know, to be a little different, a little special. Well, you must be and special if yes. you're on if you're on the arm of <laughs> Bob Dylan. Yes. Oh my goodness, I'm just like I've ever. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to bring. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. But I'm not going to bring it up. If you've been listening, you know what I'm talking about. But I'm not going to talk about it again. Bob is one. But ever since then. Ever since I saw Bob, those magic moments—they live forever. I've been. <laughs> I've There's been, tears in her <laughs> eyes right now. <laughs> I've been like obsessed, so, uh, and I'm you know we're like into our 30s now. We're really coming into our <laughs> sexual peak, and I feel like that's played a really important role. Uh, uh, full disclosure. Wow. Bob, okay, I'm gonna a- take off one of these scarves now. <laughs> So Bob played a big role in Susie's life, but I would say Susie actually played a much bigger role in Bob's life. Sorry. It's okay. You good? You ready for this? Go. We're we're going to innocent times, not where you're going. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Okay. So Susie was born in Queens in New York, and she was what was known then as a red diaper baby, meaning that her parents were basically communists. Oh. Yeah. Um, her mom, Mary, had been born in Boston to Italian immigrants, and her dad, uh, who went by Pete, his real name is like Gionaccio Rotolo, or I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. No, it's beautiful. Thank you. Um, he had been born in Sicily, but he immigrated to Brooklyn in 1914, uh, when he was around two years old with his family. And, um... 
both her parents really felt very strongly about fighting for workers' rights. And um, I believe it was after finding the writings of John Reed that her dad joined the Communist Party. And uh, he was... He was a struggling artist, and he usually paid the rent by working in factories, uh, but was often fired for inciting the workers to form a union or go on, on strike and, you know, the usual. And Susie's mom was also into politics, and after seeing, you know, and experiencing firsthand all the injustices that were happening to immigrants at that point in time, um, she ended up being the editor and col- columnist for... Unita, which was um, like the American version of the Italian communist paper. Okay. Yeah. I had to think about it, but I'm with you. Um, So their lives were very much entangled in politics, and it even played a part in her parents' engagement because Pete apparently proposed to Susie's mom by saying, I think I need to set up a picket line around you. Oh, wow. (laughs) That second scarf is coming off now. (laughs) Just kidding. I'll actually let you know when it is. Okay. Um, So as it was, money was tough to come by. And during, you know, especially difficult times, Susie and her older sister, Carla, would be sent to live in separate relatives in Boston. Um, But while they were together, they lived in Jackson Heights, which was heavily populated with immigrant families from all over Europe. And their prized possessions were really their bookshelves that were filled with books and their record player. And they didn't own a TV uh, and their father had built all their furniture. So they were very much like, you know, socialist activists, all about literature and, you know, growing as people and um her and Carla, they didn't. They did have friends in the neighborhood, but they were basically outsiders, uh, most likely because you know families around them didn't necessarily share the same beliefs. And we know that th- at a certain point, you know, the word communist people sort of ran away from that. If you weren't, you know, actually one, uh, she does say that she found solace in books and poetry and making storybooks. Uh, filled with characters she created and in, from an invented world. The good memories come from the culture I lived within, being around interesting adults and different backgrounds, all kinds of music and all those books. Though we were economically working class and money was always an issue, we had a rich cultural upbringing that I relished. So when Susie was 14, her dad died very suddenly oh, of a heart no. attack. Yeah. So, of course, this was a huge blow for Susie and her family. Uh, Over the next few years, her mother kind of turned to alcohol to numb the pain. And Susie, uh, she kind of became more withdrawn at school. That's so wild because I just listened to a podcast today that's just like a health and wellness one. And it was about two guys who unexpectedly lost their father at 16. And then how their mother turned to drinking and how that really how that really affected them. So and it was pretty wild how they really had to like suddenly they're like they're a parent yeah yeah absolutely yeah so that's what Susie was going through and it definitely affected her grades and her teachers were very less than sympathetic um this would affect her future because she did want to go to college but she just didn't have the grades to go oh yeah um 
but her de- her father's death did kind of bring her and her sister together a little bit more. Of course. Um, her sister, you know, was trying to help her out of her shell. And she would bring Susie to gatherings um, with her college friends. And many of them also were raised or held communist beliefs. And so for the first time, she was like going out, meeting, you know, people her own age and meeting boys mm. and um so yeah, she be- she started coming out of her shell around, you know, 14, 15. Um, because she didn't go to school with these people, she usually would meet them at Washington Square Park and they would hang out in the village and, you know, check out the folk artists playing. And um, folk music back then was really considered like the music of the left, uh, as so many songs were about fighting, you know, fascists and searching for equality and peace and things like that. So uh yeah, that's that was the scene. And she became involved in some free outside classes that focused on politics. And uh, for a summer, she was camp counselor at a socialist Jewish camp upstate where she had her first boyfriend. And mm. yes, um, when she heard about uh, the march in D.C. to end uh, segregation, uh, she volunteered at the headquarters in Harlem and she marched with 10,000 other students in DC. Yeah. So she, you know, following in her father's footsteps and her mother's, she was always into politics. Did you ever write children's books or did you ever write books when you were a child? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so. So many. I also made my own magazine, which I now realize like I was making zines without realizing it. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I wish I still had them. I have a few here. Yeah. I have this one book that I wrote called The Best Night of My Life. And I didn't realize until probably a few years ago that the main character was like my dog at the time personified. Aww. Yeah. And he like, yeah. And he's like the underdog. (laughs) But he like gets the girl at the end because he's so lovable. (laughs) It's kind of like my... That's so cute. Yeah. It, I think it's important to like to write and everything as a kid. Get those ideas out. And then when like computers started to become a thing, mm-hmm. like I think we got our first computer when I was like 10 years old. And so I, my, I don't think it was my dad who was like, you could have like a diary on here. And then he gave me a floppy disk so that I could save. So instead yeah, of having yeah. like a written diary, I could type it and then put it on the floppy disk and then keep the and floppy like, disk yeah, safe. That's Definitely smart. don't have that anymore. But like, thanks dad for encouraging me Writing. to do that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. My dad was very much also, uh, we would also go out for like long walks and I would tell him stories. <sighs> And, like, he still brings them up sometimes. He'll be like, remember that story you told me, like, when we were there? And- <laughs> yeah, actually, another book that I have here is my dad illustrated the book. So oh. I've got two here that are sort of, like, self-published, yeah. you know, 10 years old. And my dad did the illustrations to one of them, so. That's so cool. Way to me. go, creative dad. Yeah. Gotta show me after. Okay. Um, so during her last year of school, uh, theater really became a refuge for her, and it really helped her overcome a lot of the shyness that was sort of left in her. Um, she managed to make a couple of friends, too, but they were now kind of heading off to college. And, uh, yeah, we know Susie just didn't have the grades to continue her education. Um, so her sister was living in Greenwich, and it was only her and her mom in Queens, and while her mother did maintain a job, she she was drinking heavily and the effects really did weigh on Susie and their relationship became a little strained. 
So she ended up moving to Harlem to live with her aunt, and she got a job as a clerk at the Book of the Month Club, which sounds just up my alley. Um, one of her good family friends was a man named Pete Carmen. Uh, he sort of became a chaperone for her, and uh, her mom kind of asked him to keep an eye out for her. Like, But his idea of chaperoning was like going to Greenwich, getting her into the bars, <laughs> things like that. Yep. Um, Pete Carmen uh, would become or maybe he was already, a journalist for the New York Mirror. So if that name sounds familiar, that's why. In the spring of 1961, Susie's mother was doing much better, uh, and she had decided that what she needed was a change of scenery, and she wanted to move to Italy. So since Susie was still a minor, it was planned that she would go too, and she was looking forward to it. Um, as it came closer to the time that they were leaving uh, she kept getting this foreboding feeling. Um, she had a dream that uh, made it clear, like, I shouldn't be going, but she ignored it, and the day finally came. Oh, don't ignore your intuition, yeah, right? babies. They were driving from New York to Boston uh, to the passenger ship, and Susie had this an- other another unsettling moment. She had a vision in the car. She said she could see up ahead, um, she could see them up ahead driving in the car like she could see them on the on the road and and it had like this creepy feeling but she ignored it again and she ended up falling asleep and when she woke up there was a man over her like trying to get her out of the car um a woman had got the bright idea to back up and cross four lanes of the highway and of course like this woman missed her exit i guess so she was like i'll just back up and go across four lanes brilliant yeah so neither car saw each other so her mom ended up with a broken kneecap um they both had broken ribs and concussions and Susie also had a right eyelid lacerated and that (gasps) yeah it required 30 stitches so they were really incredibly lucky to be alive um Susie later learned that because she had been asleep at the time and her body was relaxed it actually saved her from a severe spinal cord injury oh yeah yeah um at the time that that type of car had no seat belts no way yeah um so their move never ended up happening and it took a long recovery period uh but Susie got lucky and through friends of her sister um she ended up getting or house sitting uh, an apartment in Greenwich Village. So after they healed and everything and her mother was sort of healing with family, she she got to move down to Greenwich. So her apartment was on Waverly Place. I, I can't wait to bring you to New York. I can't wait to yeah. go. Um, she really took any odd job she could get to earn a living before she got work at the New York offices of CORE, which stands for Congress of Racial Equality. Um, It was 1961, so they were just beginning to see, um, like, all the sit-ins and freedom rides that were happening. Um, I'm not sure if you know much about, like, the freedom rides and everything. If anyone doesn't know, it was just, like, it's another tactic that CORE was creating to desegregate public Mm -hmm. transportation and things like that. Uh, There's lots of interesting information online about that and in her book, so... It is uh, it is really interesting history there. I already want to read this book. It's so good. It's so good. Um, 
So Susie's job there was like sending out mailings and spreading information and like catalogs and um, cataloging like all the donations that came in and things like that. Um, So it was also in 1961 that Susie first met Bob. Okay. Um, She calls him Bobby. I I want to call him Bobby, but I don't know. It's it's weird. It just he's so like he's such like a god that Bobby doesn't Mm -hmm. seem. suited so yeah i'm, I'm gonna call him bob because okay i i don't know i bob mean presenter's well. choice <laughs> um Susie was 17 and bob bobby was 20 um they met at a marathon folk concert that was being held in upper manhattan uh all the yeah so he, bob dylan was already 20 years old in 1961 yeah yeah he that's was, wild yeah Susie was born in um, 1943, November 20th, and Bob was born May 24th, 1941. Hmm. Um, And if anyone doesn't know, I don't know how you would know, but his name was Robert Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. Um, He had just moved to New York, like, within that year that he met Susie. So he, he was born in Minnesota. He's a small town guy he comes to new york wanting to be a singer he's starting to get shows here and there he hasn't made a name for himself yet people in in greenwich know about him but the world doesn't know about him yet okay so she had already seen him before at some of the folk clubs um and they hadn't really talked yet though so this day they finally officially met and she says in her book We started flirting and talking backstage early in the day and didn't stop until the day was done. He was funny, engaging, intense, and persistent. These words completely describe who he was throughout the time we were together. Only the order of the words would shift depending on the mood or circumstances. If I drew a portrait of him, it would consist of words morphing into different shapes and sizes. He was not linear. He was quirky and jumpy, receptive to what was around him. As inexperienced as I was in the ways of love, I felt a strong attraction to this character. It was as if we knew each other already. We just needed time to get better acquainted. And we did so over the next four years. Oh, yeah. So I also have a quote from Bob's book because he also mentions their first encounter. Oh, lovely. Yes. So he says... Right from the start, I couldn't take my eyes off her. She was the most erotic thing I'd ever seen. She was fair-skinned and golden-haired, full-blooded Italian. The air was suddenly filled with banana leaves. We started talking, and my head started to spin. She had a smile that could light up a street full of people and was extremely lively. She had a particular type of voluptuousness, a rodent sculpture come to life. She reminded me of a libertine heroine. She was just my type. Cupid's arrow had whistled by my ears before, but this time it hit me right in the heart and the weight of it dragged me overboard. Oh my god. Right? Only Bob Dylan can talk about Cupid. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I know. So yeah, oh, they okay. were both like pretty much smitten right off the bat. And they began doing just like what Susie said. They began getting to know each other, and they would spend all their days and evenings in the village just wandering around. 
uh, going to local clubs. They visited every art gallery, um, talk about philosophy, politics, poetry. Bob, all the things that we know Bob for, you know, political uh, lyrics, and we know the poetry that inspired him. We know all these things, art. That was all Susie. He didn't know about... I mean, he knew about Woody Guthrie. He knew he wanted to be a musician and everything, but... Susie. Yeah. Yeah, girl. Susie had the upbringing that he didn't have. Right. Yeah. So when they're going around to art galleries and things like that, it's because Susie wanted to show him a new artist. And, you know, um, she introduced him to, uh, like, Rimbaud and Brett and all these people who greatly influenced his work later on that's why we do this podcast right oh yeah um so yeah he he really did learn a lot from her and and it was Susie who really got him you know into the civil rights movement and caring about what was happening in the world and everything um I have another quote from Bob he said I felt like I was in love for the first time in my life. I could feel her vibe 30 miles away, wanting her body next to mine. Outside of my music, being with her seemed to be the main point in life. Maybe we were spiritual soulmates. Yep. Yes. So, yeah, they were really getting to know each other and trusting each other. But Susie always had this wall up. She was quite reluctant to trust him. Because we know Bob back then, he was kind of a liar. He was very secretive. He didn't want people to know about his past. And that didn't just count like uh, media people. It was also her. He he was very vague about where he came from. Um, but she says open about anything that intrigued him. So Bob would basically like weave these wild tales that were incredibly interesting, but always like contradictory to previous ones. So basically, it was like constantly lying to her and everyone around. And Susie didn't really care all that much about the stories, but she did find herself hurt that like even as their relationship progressed, he he really was holding back. She only found out his true last name, Zimmerman, when uh, one night he dropped his wallet and his draft card fell out. So that kind of, they had a good talk that night and she was like, I I need you to actually talk to me. Like, I, I don't want to date a stranger. Mm-hmm. And she does say that he started to open up a great deal. And once he realized also like that he could trust her, that she's not going to be, you know, going around telling her his secrets, he, he did over time open up. So Bob still hadn't really found his footing in New York. Uh, it, this was his first year here, as I said. He was couch hopping, and soon Susie would also have to give back the apartment that she was uh, setting for. So, um, sorry. Um, he found his first New York apartment, and that was at 161 West 4th Street. And he moved in a few months before Susie would join him um, because he was 20 or 21 and she was still 17 so it was like illegal yeah and um they were kind of worried that bob would get in trouble so um it was actually dave van ronk who um if you've seen the movie inside lewin davis that's like um very very loosely based on him 
Dave Van Ronk was was known as the mayor of McDougal Street. He was sort of like the Rodney. Yeah. He um, everyone knew him. You were nobody if if you weren't on his radar, you know. And uh, he kind of became like a, a mentor to Bob and and Susie. So yeah, he was like, maybe you should wait till she's eighteen. <laughs> So Bob moved in, and then in a few months, Susie moved in on her like after her eight, the day after her eighteenth birthday, mm. <laughs> just to be safe. They were like, maybe like wait like your birthday and a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, Susie's mother, by the way, was also finding new love, and was living in sin, as her mother was saying, and uh, with her boyfriend, whose name was Fred, and he was a humanities professor. I believe they lived in New Jersey. She, um, he was married. He was waiting for his divorce to be finalized. And once that was, her mother got married and, you know, was a lot healthier and happier, too. So oh, that's nice to just, hear. Yeah, I wanted to add that in. Because we never know with these stories, you know. Exactly. That's exactly. nice. Thanks for adding that in. No it was problem. very considerate of you. Yeah. Just in case anyone's wondering about the poor mom. Yeah. She uh, And she recovered from, you know, her car injuries and everything. So Susie really paints, like, this most beautiful picture of those early days living together in Greenwich um, she left court and she started working in theater usually she would build props and sets and things like that any any kind of backstage thing and she also would waitress between gigs just you know to get money and Bob was getting gigs and starting to build up a name for himself uh, they would be all, all night going to clubs or house parties at the uh, Van Ronks I should also mention that Dave had a wife named Terry Thal, and she was incredible as well. She deserves her own episode. She was not just a wife. She helped every musician in the scene. She was actually, you know, for a brief time, sort of like Bob's manager. She got him, like, all his early gigs in the city, and she did that for a lot of... uh, she, they, both the Van Ronks were like mentors to everyone in that scene. Cool. Yeah, they were really great people, and they had really great parties. <laughs> so yeah, they'd be up at their place all night. And um, Susie says that the Van Ronks apartment, which was one ninety Waverly Place, quickly became the living room f- of the new generation of Bohemians. That sounds amazing. Right? It just reminded me of something that I did this weekend. Just speaking of like great parties, you know? <laughs> so it's not often that we really like have a barn burner, you know, or that I really like let loose and just, yeah, I'll, I'll be on the vodka train with you yeah, tonight. So by the time we got to this party, so it was somebody's birthday party and they had rented out um, the basement of a bar and they had like a huge projector screen um, with the music playing and like the music videos were linked up to the music. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, saw what was playing and was like, who's controlling the music? And TJ was like, don't do it. (laughs) And I was like, but where's it coming from? He's like, stop. And I was like but can we just like request some things and he's like we can't somebody else's birthday and i was like okay (laughs) next day i was like oh my god thank you so much for keeping me in line because like it's a birthday that's somebody's birthday and you know what like she's from poland so like her 
picks were like very just strange, yeah. you know, and um, well, but maybe you, right? That's good. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Open you up to some new things. Yeah. Anyways, once I found the cake, I was like, <laughs> I was fine. I was doing better. I've never been on the vodka train with you. <laughs> we should. Yeah, really. I'm surprised we haven't, actually. But yeah, so that's what Susie and Bob are doing at this time. And um, I had to add this because if you know Dylan's music, you'll you'll like this little nod. She said that usually they'd end up walking home through the village at the break of dawn, mm-hmm. hearing the roosters crowing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and they would also, mm-hmm. like, go by the bakery and just really read the book. It's I, I just, I want a time machine. I want to go back to Greenwich. I That's where I hang out most of my time when I'm there now. Yeah. But just imagining it, like, in, in its heyday, I'm like, ugh, I just can't even, I can't even imagine I think maybe like one of the closest things you could probably get is if somebody like makes a zine of you back in Greenwich Village and you could just like flip through it and yeah. just be like, look at I need to I make that scene. Yeah, yeah, you make it. I will. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and like we were saying, this was back in when New York City was actually like affordable for artists and they really like they, they had nothing. They had their books. They had their record collection that they started to grow, and that's all they needed, you know? Um, And since we're talking about parties, I'll mention that it was together that they both tried marijuana for the first time, and Susie says that she's certain it was the Canadian folk duo Ian and Sylvia Tyson who introduced them to pot. Those Canadians. (laughs) Just had to add that. Those Canadian folk duos. Um. And they really did pretty much stick to booze and pot. Um, Susie does mention that one time at a party at their house, someone slipped acid in her drink. And the experience was just absolutely terrifying. Because, of course, I mean, for the first half, you don't know what's happening to you. And then, like, once you realize, you know, you're already kind of horrified. She did say Bob was also terrified and really helped her through the night. And never after that did she ever try acid. She was like, that's that's not for me. Yeah. So some of the now infamous bars and venues that Bob and all these other great artists were playing around um, were places like the Kettle of Fish, the Gaslight. Um, when Bob first uh, got to New York, I believe he played at Cafe Wa, And then, he, you know, he graduated on from there. There are Gertie's Folk City and The Bitter End, and they were for more established musicians. I think you needed, like, a license to play there or something. So... When, once you, if you were playing there, you kind of were a step up. Um, and when the owner of Gertie's, that was like the, the, the main hangout place that they had, uh, when he found out that Susie could draw, she became one of his regular artists that was from that scene who would do posters and flyers for upcoming nice. shows and things like that. Yeah. And um, Susie also later had her drawings in broadside which was a folk music magazine she she they would post they would they would put dylan's lyrics in the magazine and then Susie would like draw pictures around it and stuff she has some of those in the book too they're really cute you can look at it if you want mm-hmm. um and yeah Susie shares so many great stories of seeing many folk um icons of this time who were just starting their careers uh just so 
anyone who's listening has an idea. There are people like Peter, Paul, and Mary, of course, Bob and Dave Van Ronk, um, Odetta, Judy Collins, Bill Lee, who was Spike Lee's dad, um, Bruce Langhorn, Jack Elliott, John Lee Hooker, Tiny Tim. You know, she mentions a lot of people in the book, and there's some great stories there. So in September, um, I believe it was actually September 29th, 1961, the, the New York Times gave a massively rave review to Dylan. Uh, he had just performed at Gertie's, and that that review, that's when his career took off. Oh, wow. Yeah. He got a record deal mm-hmm. with Columbia, and he began... Um, you know, doing more for performances and making more money at it. And when the recording began, Susie got to join him. She said, I had never been in a recording studio before, and it was exhilarating. The speakers were huge, and the playback sound en- enveloped the studio, giving me the sensation that I was inside the music, listening to the sound from the inside out. When the album came out, I read the liner notes, by Bob Shelton, and I laughed at his description of me sitting devotedly and wide-eyed through the recording <laughs> session, and Bob fretting on his guitar in my time of dying with my lipstick holder. I didn't wear lipstick, and how typical of a guy to translate my reaction to being in the studio for the first time as devotion. At least he got the wide-eyed right. I watched Bob as he sang and saw his focus, his loyalty to the work at hand, the art he was making. Bob was intense, both sure and unsure of what he was doing. Afterward, he'd ask, what did you think? What did you think? So, wow. Yeah. Um, I haven't mentioned it yet, but it should come as no surprise. She was most definitely a feminist before the term feminism. Fe- feminist had ever become a thing totally yeah yeah so she this was sort of like the start of her noticing that people were like oh look at the cute they called them they called them chicks musicians girlfriends in that scene they were chicks yep so um and yeah so bob's chick yeah this was bob's first recorded album and we know that the Van Ronks are their very close friends and mentors. Susie mentions that that was almost lost. And I thought I'd mention this because it's an interesting lesson that Bob had to learn. Okay. Um, Dave was known in the scene to do this unbelievable version of The House of the Rising Sun. And it was so good that no other musician would even attempt to play the song anymore in, in, the, in New York. So Bob decided not only to do House of a Rising Sun on his first album, but to do it as like in Van Ronk's version like version of it. <laughs> so Dave told them one day, like, oh guess what? Like I'm finally getting in the studio next week. I'm gonna like, record my version of House of the Rising Sun and Bob had to tell him like, oh I just did. <laughs> and apparently And rightfully, I can understand, Dave was, like, incredibly angry and hurt, and it took both Terry and Susie, like, intervening to, like, salvage that friendship, and uh, Susie said it took an unbelievable amount of booze, food, and many games of poker with Bob losing Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, like, mend that, but it's an interesting uh, conversation to have, especially in the folk scene, because 
almost all the folk songs of that time were weren't written by the people who made them famous right like right that's the whole point of folk music was to gather these old songs and sing them so it's like it's an interesting thing like and we know throughout bob dylan's career he's had that like plagiarism kind of thing held over him but it's it's an interesting comment on like what is what what is like theft and what isn't and I guess Absolutely. Kind of, yeah, they they had their own rules in the scene. Like it was an unwritten rule. You don't do that song. Right. And he learned just because it's not his song either. You know, some things are better left. All right. So Bobby do, D, yeah. there's your first lesson. Exactly. Not your last. Another interesting thing I learned from Susie's book was when she talked about Bob finding his folk image and just how much thought he put into his look. Hmm. We all kind of assume Bob just got dressed and walked out the door, but he actually took great care in choosing his outfits and what he wanted. Like he, he understood I'm creating a, a persona and like, what do I want that persona to be? So, um, their relationship's going well right now. In May of 62, uh, Susie, Bob and their friend, Paul Clayton took a road trip to Virginia and it was a bit of a revelation to them, uh, even though Susie had known about, you know, and fought against segregation and things like that. This is the first time they were, you know, going into Witnessing. that type of America. Yeah. yeah. And see- seeing it. Uh, they also celebrated Bob's 21st birthday um, on this trip. And I believe his first album had come out maybe like a month or two before for that. So he's still not big or anything. And she has this great moment where they're they're with locals and some old locals hear Bob playing and they're like, you got it, man. Like, there's something about you. And <laughs> it was like a special moment. And so Susie's mom was now married, like I said, to her husband, Fred, and they were planning a trip to Italy and France and they invited Susie. Um, Susie really didn't know what to do. She did want to go, but now she had this life with Bob and she was like, mm, I don't know. Um, Bob told her it was her decision, but that he would prefer her not to go. And apparently he was very angry when Terry, uh, did not enforce his view that she shouldn't leave him. <laughs> um, Susie also was kind of questioning her mom's intentions because it's no secret that, she didn't like Bob, and Bob didn't like her. Okay. Yeah. Um, Susie actually says, he paid no homage, to, and she paid him none. They saw through each other in some way that had nothing to do with me. So um, Bob actually, in some of his later songs, he, like, mentions his her mom. and That's really weird. Right? Um, in the end, Susie said, I'm going to go. Oh, okay. I wasn't expecting right? that. So the reason she... I mean, given the history of uh, the episode, I know, right? I That's, wasn't expecting that. This was that. so great about Susie. She, there was something pulling her away, and she, she didn't really know what, what it was, but she was smart enough to, to, you know, check that out. She wanted to figure out what was going on with her. So on June 9th in 1962, they made the voyage to France and they spent some time there and then they drove like through Switzerland to Italy and um, 
she, Susie was going to be left in Sardinia while her mom, no, sorry. She was going to be left in Perugia while her mom and Fred went to Sardinia. So Susie had enrolled herself in a three-month language course there. Cool. Yeah. But the minute Susie was alone, she kind of went into this panic. She was like, oh, my God, like, I'm in this foreign country. Like, I'm all alone. My mother planned this out. She separated me. Like, Hmm. what, you know, um, it was really overwhelming for her. And it actually took her days to get the courage to even leave her room. But slowly she started to venture out and she would go on to, of course, make friends and everything. So that was like probably something that she really needed to do. Oh, absolutely. And her and Bob, they they did stay in touch. I have, um, she does put a couple of his letters I in. was going to say, because if she's gone for that long, because when you said she's going on a trip, I was like, okay, well, she'll be gone like a month. But it's like, oh, no, she's gone for like months at a time. That's a risky thing. Oh, sorry. My radio <laughs> randomly comes on <laughs> at 7.47 p.m. My goodness. All right. It's because I, I got this alarm clock radio and I was just fiddling around with it and I just tested it once. Do you not know how to turn it off? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it gave me time to get Bob's letter. So, And guess what radio station it's set to? 97.3. The boom. Nice. It's the best radio station in Toronto, if you ask me. All right. So I got two letters I'm going to read you. And I will try to read it in Bob's style. Oh, great. So the first one I got here. Nothing much happening here, I guess. Bob Shelton is waiting for Jean. The dogs are waiting to go out. The thieves are waiting for an old lady. Kids are waiting for school. Cops is waiting to beat up on someone. Them lousy bums are waiting for money. Grove Street's waiting for Bedford Street, and the dirty are waiting to be cleaned. Everyone is waiting for cooler weather. I'm just waiting for you. Right? Yep. And here's another one for you. I had another recording session, you know. I sang six more songs. You're in two of them. Bob Dylan blues and down the highway. All you five and ten cent women ain't got nothing in your heads. I got a real gal I'm loving and I'll love her her till I'm dead. So get away from my door and my window too, right now. Anyway, you're in those two, specifically. And another one too. I'm in the mood for you, which is about you, but I don't mention your name. I wrote a song about that statue we saw in Jefferson, in Washington of Tom Jefferson. You're in it. So, basically the letters... (laughs) Those are awesome. Yeah. He definitely wrote in the way that he spoke. Yeah, you really put my Bob like it's like yeah, on yeah. level. Good. Yeah. Love it. So yeah, Susie's out there. She's trying to figure out why she's out there. She knows there is a reason. And it was while she was reading um Francois Gillot's memoir, uh, Life with Picasso. She was Picasso's muse. Mm-hmm. Um, she had this revelation while she was reading it. Um, she forgot all about Picasso, and she could really only see Bob. Their personalities were just so similar that she was really floored by this. And um, one of the things that really stuck out to her was how these genius men 
were allowed to do and act how they wanted, but the women were sidelined and expected to like serve when needed and give without being nurtured back. Oh. Right? So Susie had been experiencing this a little bit in Greenwich. And um, I have a quote here. In my youthful confusion, I was still struggling with permission to be. All that was offered to a musician's girlfriend in the early 60s was the role as the boyfriend's chick, a string on his guitar. And in the case of Bob's rising fame, I would be a gatekeeper, one step closer to an idol. People would want to know me just to get closer to him. My significance would be based on his greater significance. That idea did not entice. Wow. Yeah. And she's only like, what, like 18 here. Yes. Yeah. But she's realizing, and this is before he's even hit great fame. Like, this isn't really like that. I don't want to be just, you know, a side piece. Well, yeah. No, like even in our episode last week, I don't know if I said it, but definitely, you know, Caroline had talked about being famous by association. Yeah. And she didn't mind playing that role. Yeah. I'm, so it works for some people and yeah. it doesn't for others, for sure. So with this revelation, like Susie was like, oh, my God, this is what I've been feeling. I just didn't know how to put it in words. And she really wanted to, like, nurture her herself and to grow as a person. And that really gave her the determination to not let this opportunity of, like, being in Europe pass her by. Um, she enrolled in an art school. She would take long walks. She ferociously read everything she could get her hands on, like poetry. And she was making her own poetry as well. And I'm in love with her. Right? She's she's amazing. She's amazing. She was drawing a lot more. Um, she met a lot of new people and she began picking up the language very quick. Uh, she also began using the name Justine out there after a book she was reading, which was Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet. And to top it off, she cut her waist-length hair to a more manageable and fashionable Italian style, which is was still quite long. It was, like, past her shoulders, but I guess that was a big shock. And uh, she was, you know, trying her best to kind of explain what she was going through to Bob. I'm not really sure if he understood at that point, like, what she was going through. And when she cut her hair... Um, he he wrote her back saying, yes, maybe I wish you didn't cut your hair. It's so good. The only blonde hair that doesn't look like hay. It'll grow back though, huh? Maybe you won't cut it no more then. So some men just. Yeah. And again, it, that's the times, I guess. Bob's not realizing like, hey, women are evolving. Mm-hmm. So. Susie really was like putting off going back home. She didn't want to go back to that scene. She she still very much loved Bob, but she didn't want to go back to being a, a chick, you know. And she was really unsure of what like what to do. Um, in the end, it was actually the Cuban Missile Crisis that sort of helped her figure it out. It was an intense time for the world, of course, like watching and waiting to see how that would play out. And Bob had sent her a letter, and I have this letter. It says, sitting in the Figaro all night waiting for the world to end. I honest to God thought it was all over. Not that I gave a shit any more than the next guy. That's a lie, I guess. But it was interesting waiting for the bombs to fall and kill you, and it really seemed that way. If the world did end that night, all I wanted was to be with you. And it was impossible because you're so far away. And that's why it seems so hopeless. Wow. So, yeah. Um, 
this was Su- Susie was feeling exactly the same way and after all that indecision and conflicted feelings that it just disappeared and she said I knew where I wanted to be so after eight months of wow. being in, yeah she decided now I'm, I'm ready to I'm ready to go home so yeah she had an amazing eight months where she really did grow and um, very important for her and I think that's great too that you know she didn't let fear of maybe losing a guy stop her from doing something she knew that you know for for herself she needed to do putting herself first exactly which is just yeah almost unheard of yeah when you for sure link up with a god yes (laughs) not that i don't know if they if any maybe they did know that about him back then at that time but i think they were starting they're starting to realize yeah good for her so when she arrived she really couldn't wait to see her friends in the village and start working in the theater again um, Bob had been on tour, I believe. So he was away for like another week. So she had planned to kind of settle in and see her friends. And she really did not expect to be greeted the way she was. By Bob? No, by everyone else. Oh. She said, when I went around to some of the clubs, I did not get a friendly reception. I was greeted with accusations that I was cold and indifferent to someone who loved me. I was not there for his heartache. Um, as well as any bow, oh sorry, I I was not there for Dylan when he needed me most. I jumped a I jumped a line. Some deliberately sang songs he had written about his heartache, as well as any ballad that pointed a finger at a cruel lover. <laughs> Bob had suffered publicly, and as a result, I was a villain. The Barbara, uh, all to his sweet William. Um, I had been looking forward to reconnecting with people and had not expected this unwelcome home. It was as if every letter Bob had written to me and every phone call he made had been performed in a theater in front of an audience. Now I was the second act, standing alone on the stage after intermission. It was open season on my performance, and I was booed and panned while the guy in the first act had a standing ovation. What? Yeah. So... Bob had been, you know, playing his songs in Greenwich, the songs he wrote about missing her and um, things like that. And everyone in the village was like, how dare the, mm-hmm. how dare she leave this genius man when he needed her, you know? Um, I'm happy to report, though, that Bob, he did not treat her like, how dare you have left me? He Right away, th- there was no kind of readjustment period for them. They were still madly in love and they both had experienced now so much in their time apart because yeah. you know Bob had done his first tour and was recording and they really had like so much to talk about and Susie had this newfound confidence in herself and their relationship and while they were while she was away it really like it was a great creative time for Bob like in his music and um she had like learned so much over there that she was now bringing home to share with him. So yeah, they both had been, you know, incredibly productive and a lot of Bob's feelings went into songs that we love. And um, yeah, actually one of my favorite songs of Bob's came out, which was uh, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Mm, I think that's... One of a lot of people's yeah, favorite songs. Exactly. It is something special. Yeah. 
And yeah, we know from Bob's letter down the highway and Bob Dylan's blues are kind of also about her. And um, yeah, he wrote Don't Think Twice, It's All Right when during that time where Susie was like, I don't know when I'm coming back. If I'm coming back, I'm kind of, you know, exploring myself out here. So um, even songs that weren't, you know, about her were inspired by her as it was Susie who really pushed him to write politically relevant songs. And she even taught him about certain people or issues like um, the death of Emmett Till and the ballad of Peter Amberley. Uh, a lot of songs that sort of were outtakes, but are now like we now have them. Um, she's the one who, who told him those stories or told him to like, look this up. And so she's just all over those albums. Wow. Yeah. Um, and in February of 63, Columbia publicist Billy James and photographer Don Hunstein came to their apartment to shoot the cover art. <laughs> so they shot some with Bob in the apartment before someone, she can't remember, uh, suggested that Susie get in the photos. She felt really awkward and shy with it, um, but the photographer, she said, was really great, and she kind of eventually felt at ease. And, of course, there's some great shots of Bob playing to her done in the apartment. But then Don suggested that they all go outside. And it was freezing out, but Bob picked his suede coat for, you know, style reasons. And Susie did the same. She had this beautiful green coat that she'd bought in Italy. But because it was so freezing out, they had she had, like, five layers on underneath. And she said that she – I felt like an Italian sausage. Aww. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they walked up and down Jones Street with Bleecker Street at their backs and um, Susie took a break to warm up and some solo shots of Bob walking and everything were taken. And when the cover art was finally chosen by the Columbia execs, Bob had nothing to do with the choosing of it. Um, Susie was really surprised to see that they'd chosen the photo with her. Oh, I love it. Isn't it the best? It's the best. And you can like really see... We're love. looking at it right now. Yeah. It's such a great, such a iconic. Yeah. So she, she was really happy with it. And Bob apparently was very, very happy with it. So it all worked out. And um, Bob was actually set to perform on the Ed Sullivan show to promote the album. But CBS told him that he couldn't perform the song he had chosen. He had chosen one called Talkin'. Uh, John Birch Paranoid Blues and it was sort of like a controversial subject matter and he said if you don't let me play this I'm not going to play at all so Bob never did go on oh. Sullivan and Columbia actually cut the song completely off the album um, He only, Bob agreed because he got to choose a couple newer songs that he'd written to like put in its place and that album officially came out in May I believe so um, we know that Bob was kind of like very closed off and lied about, you know, where he came from and everything like that. But um, when Susie was in Italy, uh, he was really opening up to her in his letters. And now she really did feel like I know I know the real him and he knows the real me. And since arriving in New York, Bob had been pretty much cut off from his family, but his family actually got in touch after reading an article about their son in a magazine or a newspaper. 
um, the, the newspaper said that Alan Grossman was his manager. So they called Alan Grossman and was like, can you get us in touch with our son? <laughs> and uh, so Bob did call home. And in April, Bob invited his parents to come to New York. And they did get to see him perform. And Bob and Susie went to dinner with his parents after. And she says they were really nice and reserved. And um, she was just really happy that, you know, they were at this step in their relationship where it's like, Bob, trust me, and I'm meeting his parents. And so they were very serious, you know. Um, And she also mentions around this time they were traveling a lot. She would go with him to random events and things. They spent a week at the Columbia Records Convention that was in Puerto Rico, and there's some stories there. And she also mentions um, coming to Toronto with him. Oh, cool. Yeah, just like a a throwaway thing there, but thought that was cool. And um, so they were traveling around a lot together, and so, of course, she was with him for the Newport Festival as well. So I guess now's a good time to bring up Joan Baez. Yeah, let's do that. So by now, Joan was a, like a superstar. She was known as the queen of folk. She was much, much bigger than Dylan. And they did kind of hang on the same circles. But um, I don't think Joan was like that impressed with him until she heard some of his songs. and was like, oh, my God, like you have a genius in you. And so... And her name is Susie. Yes. <laughs> um, she really did become kind of fascinated with Bob and his music. And they'd played together before at Monterey. Um, Joan invited Bob to come up and play with her. Bob really never considered himself a protest singer. And Joan, like, did. And she sort of ended up introducing him to a lot to a lot of like political activists and was really determined to spread Bob's songs around because she really believed like this is the voice of our generation this is the the music that needs to be heard so she was like all about Bob even though she was also with someone else um she definitely did have a massive crush on Bob and in New York they actually opened and closed the show Newport did I say New York or Newport in Newport, they opened and closed the show together. Um, if you're wondering if they had like a physical relationship at this time. I am time, wondering. Joan has said, we didn't need to make love. The music seemed enough at the time. Yeah. So people were noticing this, though. And Susie said, um, it was inevitable that he and Baez would create electricity. I got a few sidelong glances whenever they sang together. So the rumor mill is really kind of beginning and there's gossip about Joan and Dylan, you know, spending time together. They were definitely, uh, Joan invited him out on like her tour after that. So they were definitely spending like a lot of time together. Um, I also read another book when I was doing this episode uh, called Positively Fourth Street. It focuses on like Joan and Dylan and Richard Farina and one of Joan's sisters. She had two other sisters who are big in the folk scene. Um, There's comments in that about how people would notice Joan kind of like caressing Bob's hair. And one time they walked backstage and like they were slow dancing together back (sighs) there and stuff. So they were definitely like getting physical. Yeah. Um, And Bob actually ended up going to the West Coast for a while. Yeah. He went to the West Coast and actually lived with Joan and her family for a short time. 
So this was definitely like a rough point for Susie, um, mostly because she hated her private life being, you know, the number one topic of gossip. And um, she decided what was best for her was to move out of their apartment, which she did. And she moved in with her sister uh, in an apartment on Avenue B. She was working in theater and waitressing here and there, and she also enrolled at a school for visual arts and began to, like, meet new people. And she she was trying to sort of, like, develop her own life. She wanted to be her own person, you know. Um, her and Bob did continue their relationship, though, but she felt a lot less pressure when they weren't living together and could come together when they chose to. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can understand that. And, again, she's young. She's She doesn't want to be tied down. Um, her sister, Carla, had had been a big fan of Bob's when they first started the relationship. But after the Joan stuff, she was like not a fan of Bob anymore. Um, and Susie really says, like, I, I was caught in the whirlpool of indecision that is tortured young love. And we sure tortured and young loved each other to distraction. Um, I mentioned earlier that Bob meant like has kind of basically talked shit about uh, her parent or her mother and her sister before. If you listen to the song Ballad in Plain D, um, I think the like last line in the in the song is like, uh, her for her parasite sister, I have no respect or something Oof. like that. So it, it it was pretty heated between Susie's family and Bob. Um, shortly after she moved to Avenue B, Susie actually did find out she was pregnant. It was a very tough decision. In the end, they decided to have an abortion. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, and I of just, course, like, I had no idea yeah. about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And at that point, it was illegal. So. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. To make that decision, it was like a, a greater decision than, you know, it is today in some respects because it was like. I need to find the right doctor. I need to make sure that like something doesn't go wrong. And um, so it really, it was a stressful time, but they did their research and they found the right person and they decided this is needs to be done. Um, by around October, I guess Bob had come back from Joan's place in LA. Um, he had a concert at Carnegie Hall and uh his parents came back for it and they were so proud of bob and they got interviewed by newsweek and they were just so happy but that newsweek article was incredibly harsh and it took the tone of bob that was when the world found out bob dylan is robert zimmerman and he's not what he appears to be and they really kind of made it sound like he was an imposter like look at this middle cast upbringing like you think he's like this poor poet you know prophet and so uh, unfortunately like his parents s suddenly went from like being just talking about their son to have like told his secret basically and uh, he didn't blame his parents, though. He, like, he understood, but they felt so awful that they possibly harmed their son's career. And, um, of course, Bob was just furious about the article coming out at all. Um, 
but the Carnegie Hall performance, not only for Bob, was also a big shift for Susie. Um, we do know it had been coming for a while, though. Um, Bob's fame was, you know, growing bigger and bigger. And for the first time, it was at this show that fans were, like, waiting there and chased them after. <laughs> and she says, I remember being very frightened by the energy of the crowd. They literally charged the limo, pounding the roof, slapping the windows, yelling to get Bob's attention. This was truly the beginning of his future. Bobby has become Dylan. Yeah. So that was like a huge kind of turning point. Um, I I should mention also, I forgot to, but when I started this, um, Susie's book is not linear. So there may be things that I'm saying that didn't happen precisely in this order. I tried to kind of make it as linear oh, as I could. Okay. And they do kind of get on and off in their relationship and... Um, because she's not specific about that, I sort of had to like make a timeline for that. Oh, nice. So I'm pretty sure that like this is 99%. It mm. all happened. It's just, you know, one thing might have happened a little earlier and one thing might have happened later. Oh, that's really cool. Thanks. It, it's a really great book. And I like the way that she, it, I like that it's nonlinear because it's very, you know, Dylan and it made, it made sense in the book. Um, so because Bob's fame is growing and Susie, we already know Susie has this feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm not a chick. I am a woman of my own importance. And um, she had a couple of interesting conversations around this time. Uh, the first was with Pete Seeger after this, the Carnegie Hall uh, concert. She says, um, he said I was a muse to an exceptional songwriter and artist. He talked about his philosophy of life. He talked about his wife, Toshi. He talked about many things, but above all, he wanted to tell me how special Bob was and how I was an important role in that. He wanted to acknowledge my role since I, too, was a rare soul. I felt honored by his call and warmed by his words. His thoughtfulness in making the call and his regard of how I might be feeling in this whirlwind time of rising fame for Bob was generous and genuinely helpful. Even though he saw in me the role as the woman behind the man, I was not offended. But she had kind of the opposite conversation with Alan Lomax, who was another kind of folk rock seen guy in, in the in that time um he had told her that he thought she was exceptional because in so many words i stood by the poet the genius i unselfishly tended to his needs and desires i put him first i was a rare girl for these times so by that she was like incredibly offensive and yeah. she was like uh, no no <laughs> so Susie had you know we know she had experienced this before she went to Italy, but because Bob has gone, you know, even greater heights by now, uh, it was an even greater problem. Um, she said, there was an attitude toward, toward musicians' girlfriends, chicks, as we were called, or old lady, if a wife. That I couldn't tolerate. The word chick made me feel as if I weren't a whole being. I was a possession to this person, Bob, who was the center of attention. That was supposed to be my validation. I was still forming myself, but I did know I wasn't a musician, nor was I a musician's chick. And you could bet the neck of a Gibson I had no desire to graduate to old lady. <gasps> I bet the right? neck of a Gibson. Yeah. Haven't heard of that one before. <laughs> so good. 
I chafed at the notion of devoting my young self to serving anybody since I was still curious and life-questioning. Because I was with my boyfriend didn't mean I had to walk a few paces behind picking up his tossed candy wrappers, but I didn't know where to put that frustration. This was before women's lib in the 70s when many of these issues were articulated. I resented not being able to wander off by myself and sit in a cafe to draw, read or write without guys or the way guys could without being hit on and forget about going to a movie alone. A girl at the movies by herself meant she was fair game, asking for trouble, and she usually got it. So, yeah, she's really feeling the frustration of the time, and fuck, I can't even imagine. Like, it's bad enough now. Yeah. um, In the 60s, especially when you don't have, um, you know, an outlet to vocalize this yet. You know, it's great that women's lib... It, when you read her book, you kind of, it's like, it makes sense that women's lib happened immediately after this time, you know, like it was, it was about time. Yeah. It's just like fair game. It's like, refer, it's like referring to like men. It's like just animals. Yeah. And it's so true. Like the, that woman, you know, you're a wife. So now you're an old lady. Like that is so insulting. But then again, it's like. But if you're not somebody's old lady by this certain tw- point, then you're, what is it, like, out to a pasture? <laughs> out to pasture, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, it's like you can never win as a woman. Yeah. So, yeah. I, she does say that Bob, like, never saw her as just a chick um, or less than him. He knew her There's a lot her of other importance. people putting that on yes. there, yeah. Um. But yeah, it still doesn't make up for how like infuriating that must have been for her. So even with Susie uh, now living like separate from Bob, he would always be at her place. And if he wasn't in the city, he was constantly phoning her. And for some women, that would be like amazing. Um, but for Susie, who was kind of desperately at this point trying, you know, to separate herself from that, um, it's interesting that you. Uh, this relates also to Carol's thing because she says that like I I I needed to separate myself from the trickle down fame. Yeah, right. Because there was Bob, and then all of Bob's close friends suddenly like all of them were famous, and she just did not want it. So there was always like the love the love between them was strong, but the fame and all the negativity that came with that was just it was too much for her. Like she never signed up for that. She never wanted it. And she said that one night they were like walking together silently along East 57th and uh, they were heading towards our apartment. And she says, he was inside himself. I felt uneasy, trapped. I thought I would suffocate. I looked at him and I said I had to go. I felt my life was at stake. With a resigned sadness, he gestured toward me with his hand. It wasn't an offer to take it. I saw it as an acceptance of the inevitable, and I echoed the gesture. It was a sacrificial move so we could both move on and live as we needed to. I turned and walked away without looking back. Oh, my God. She didn't look back then, but especially when you love each other that much, breaking up isn't always the easiest of things. So Bob would still call and, you know, they were still kind of hanging out here and there and they would kind of be on and off for the next little while. 
Um, but it kind of grew more in a friendship way because she didn't want that commitment, right? She wanted to be her own person. She didn't want to jump back on, on the ride. Um, so do you think that then because of that, that he always held her in this really high regard? Like, because they didn't ever have the opportunity to let the relationship sour? and It's interesting, yeah. Um, in Bob's book, too, he doesn't really... What if they would have had that child? What I if know, they would have right? stayed together? Would he, like... Bob just says this in his book. The alliance between Susie and me didn't turn out exactly to be a holiday in the woods. Eventually, Flate flagged it down and it came to a full stop. It had to end. She took one turn in the road and I took another. So that's sort of how he kind of summarizes the end of that. They did remain like friends, though. Um, when he was recording Highway 61 Revisited, uh, Susie attended the recording sessions and she talks about how um, Alan Grossman got her to hold down some organ keys for some songs and stuff. She can't remember which song, but she was like, you know, not playing, but she was there, you know, participating. And um, she was also present for the iconic Forest Hills concert in 65 when mm -hmm. Dylan went electric. And of course, in her book, she talks about all, you know all that change and yeah Susie really doesn't specify like if they are f just friends or more than friends at this time um, but we also know he was on and off with Joan Baez at this time yeah and I think he met his wife his first wife Sarah also in this period so he, she might even be involved um, I don't know like personally things about their relationship that would be an interesting one to look into yeah but yeah you can, you can bet the neck of a gibson that would be interesting <laughs> yeah. to look into i think um after Susie though he definitely chose his women um well in regards to like not choosing another woman who wants to be out there doing her own thing and he because i don't really know about his other wives except that they were like very behind the scenes you know mm -hmm. they I don't know many public things about them. Um, so, yeah, she also mentions, uh, which I thought was interesting, that Albert Grossman called her uh, to ask for her passport stuff in uh, the 65 because Bob was going to England. Mm -hmm. And I guess Bob wanted her to come. Um, but she said that was another cue for her to sever the tie because, yeah, she didn't want she didn't want to get caught up in that again. Um, it would have been interesting if she went. I I think that was when he met Marianne and you know did the that documentary and everything. So oh. yeah, uh, she also mentions uh, going to a party at Jerry Schatzberg Loft with Dylan, Bobby Newirth, and Edie Sedgwick, who we also know was amused to Bob for um, at least one song um, that would Leopard Prince Leopard. Print pillbox hat. Blah, 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 blah. Say that one, Pat. Right? Um, and she does talk about like how Warhol was pestering him all night and that, like. I bet. Yeah. Bob was not. Uh, Bob treated him like shit, apparently. And um, so, yeah, even though it was Susie who really like did the deciding of like, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore and kind of pushed him away, that doesn't mean that she wasn't suffering for it. Um, she talks a little bit about having like a breakdown after their split and she did have a very rough time of it. 
um, I think she even like went to live with her mother for a bit in New Jersey just to like regroup and everything. Um, speaking in hindsight, Susie said, we loved each other very much. And when it ended, it was mutual heartbreak. He was, no, his way was to do what he wished and let things sort themselves out without making decisions that might hurt. Yet that hurt more. He avoided responsibility. He didn't make it I didn't make it easy for him either. My mounting confusion and insecurities made me mistrust everything he said. I was difficult and unreasonable, but he tried hard to reach me, but I was too far gone to hear him. I made him crazy, but I knew I was not suited for this life. I could never be the woman behind the great man. I didn't have the discipline for that kind of sacrifice. Whoa. Yeah. And it is interesting to have an episode of a muse who um, knows that and doesn't want, especially since a lot of them, you know, happily accept that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. Um, Susie talks about the mix of emotions when his next few albums came out, since they're like full of stories about her and how difficult it really was for her to have all that in the public. Um, especially since she had no control over how people would, you know, read into all the lyrics and everything. Gradually, though, she did learn to let go and accept it all. She said, I listened to Dylan's songs spread over his early albums, and I remember how it was. It's like reading a diary, a private smile because no one knows about that. A laugh because that was really funny, or a tear because that was so hard. Our time together fed his work. I know I influenced him. We marked each other's lives profoundly. He once told me that he couldn't have written certain songs if he hadn't known me. But that doesn't necessarily mean a particular song. It means I served as muse during our time together, and I don't mind claiming that. I'm not going to end it with their relationship ending because Susie was her own woman, Mm -hmm. and she had some incredible things happened to her in the 60s that didn't even involve Dylan at all. Okay. So read the book, obviously. Read the book, read the book, especially to get even more of this. But um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about her involvement in politics. She was in the second wave of students to tra- to challenge the travel ban to Cuba, and she was the only woman in the group, I believe, um, she talks of the two months they spent there and all all they did, including spending time with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and, you know, other leaders. And wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. And when she was back in the States, she enrolled at the Harvard Extension School for theater production and Italian language classes. And I think um, she lived with this man, Albert Marr, who was in the group that went to Cuba for a while. Um before she returned to New York. And of course she traveled more of Europe and her book ends in the mid sixties, but I did find some facts online. She married a man named Enzo Bartocurucci. I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Um, in 1967 and Enzo is a film editor and he also worked at the UN. So I'm sure there are a lot of politics and, they had a son named Luca, and apparently Luca's like a guitarist and a guitar maker in New York right now. Oh, cool. Yeah. And Susie continued with her theater work and her artwork, and um, 
she published some stuff and she was still very much into politics. She protested at the 2004 Republican convention and, um, she was involved also in the memorial event for Dave Van Ronk who passed away in 2002. Um, she made an appearance in Scorsese's no direction home, his documentary. And I think that was the first time she ever actually talked publicly about her and Dylan. So, yeah, that happened in the 60s. It, it took her like 40 years before she was ready to, you know, open up. I've and... never seen No Direction Home, is it? It's good. Good. Yeah. Um, on, or in 2008, that's when her book came out. In 2011, on February 25th, she passed away, unfortunately, from mm-hmm. lung cancer, and she was 67. Oh, that's young. So young, yeah. But uh, I wonder what her son was up to making those guitars in New York and yeah continuing the political well we've got a trip to New York to make together yeah maybe we could do a little bit of I didn't mention this as well but I want to throw it in there Bob Dylan does great artwork as we know um he first got involved doing art because Susie came home from Italy and was drawing and he decided like I'll pick up a you know pen and paper too and so he he never would have you know thought of art if it weren't for her so he she influenced him in like every way you can imagine every way every way and it's really nice to see that bob does give her credit yeah in his books he talks about it and he's talked about it in articles and you know before he he knows that you know she helped shaped who he is and what his career became. Absolutely. You can bet the neck of a Gibson. (laughs) Gibson, she did. Yeah, that's amazing. That was so good. It's such a, what a change of pace and direction from the last two episodes. And it was, um, I wasn't expecting that at all, actually. So that was was a really nice story. She was not a string on his guitar. She she wasn't. No. It wasn't just the chick. Um, I wish she'd written another book about, you know, her life after the 60s because yep. I'm sure she had so many other fascinating, awesome things happen to her. But, yeah. And anyone who's interested in folk music or Greenwich Village in the 60s, her book, there's so much there. Um, she talks about all the people around at that time and there are plenty more stories of her and Bob in here. So I highly, highly recommend it. I really loved Really loved it. A free wheel in time, a memoir of Greenwich Village in the sixties. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much, Lynx. Of course. All right, and thank you everybody for listening. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes. Yeah. Give us a little message and show us some love. Valentine's is coming up. <gasps> Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a little bit of love. You know, you just a little love, you love, baby. Um, thank you for listening. Yeah. As always, you can find us on Instagram, iMuses and stuff, podcast, same thing with Facebook, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk 
turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.